You're a good mom. I'm the best. No, I'm pretty sure the best moms let their daughters drive. And yet? Oh, come on. Look, let's not have this conversation. But I took the class. You spend enough time not knowing where you are. I don't want to add to that the possibility that you're on the highway. I just don't want you driving, okay? I want you here. I can remember getting a phone call from my son who said, Mom, my car slipped. And I said, okay, so you'll be here a little later. We were meeting during Thanksgiving. And he says, no, Ma, my car flipped. It's been totaled. I've got to go. See you later. Now, I want to tell you, that was during Thanksgiving. I did not see him that Thanksgiving. I thought he had died in that moment. I was totally, totally paralyzed, numb. I was with the rest of my family members, and I was supposed to go shopping to get the turkey and to get all the fixings, and I meandered through that store in a total daze. Now, luckily, he's one of the lucky people who walked away when his car did flip on ice, was totaled, all the windows shattered, but he wore his seatbelt, so I'm one of the very lucky ones. Well, what do you do when you're in a car accident, a hurricane, a tornado, a flood, or you're dealing with the aftermath of a house fire, a robbery, or something on a massive scale like 9-11, or maybe something work-related like a layoff? What can help you cope better psychologically. Well, with me today is Dr. James Campbell. He's the Rhode Island coordinator for the American Psychological Association and the American Red Cross Disaster Response Network. And he's a frequent consultant to corporations regarding crisis response and threat of violence. He's the director of the University of Rhode Island Counseling Center, and he teaches courses in traumatic stress and workplace violence. He's also the author of Hostage, Terror, and Triumph. Welcome, Dr. James Campbell. Thank you very much. Yeah, welcome to the show. So what are the immediate and short-term consequences of trauma? I mentioned what happened to me, but could you give like a scenario that you've been in and tell us what you've observed in a situation where people are in desperate need of first aid? Well, for example, there's really been several instances, say, when uh, a respondent after a, uh, a sudden death, both in a university setting or a corporate setting, um, and initially people are in shock. Uh, it's a little bit like you know a website that's gotten too many hits, too much activity. It just slows down, uh, and people uh, are just in sensory overload and unable to process. Ooh, uh, so that's what explains the slowing down, the numbing, the... Yeah. Uh, the stunned and bewildered yeah. feeling. Well, partly. It's not a perfect metaphor, but I yeah. think it works. Psychological it, overload. Yeah. It's, a, it's a kind of sensory overload, and it's too much to process. And at that time, people really generally need some, some protection and some support, and someone is not going to ask too much of them at that moment, other than, you know, do you want to sit over here or over there kind of thing. Right, so um, very low-level choice-making. Yeah. This is not typical psychotherapy. This is um, structuring the environment a little bit, responding to concrete needs. One of the things that people most want typically after a, a traumatic event, a disaster, or anything like that, is information. It is the lifeblood of what people want in that context. Uh, just as the story you described, you, what happened? Where is he? Is he okay? I had no information. Right. Nothing. He said, I'm borrowing somebody else's cell phone. Got to go. 
Right. And I was cut off. He was in upstate New York where I guess you, I don't even think it was a cell phone. I think it was a regular phone. Mm -hmm. See, I don't even remember. Everything was a blur. Yeah. My whole life just froze. Right. And that's a fairly common kind of reaction in those situations. And so to how to help people through that, just giving them some guidance, um, usually giving them information in small bits and repeating it because, again, they won't be able to take it in all at once. Also, you typically in those situations don't have all the information that they want, but you can at least recognize that that's what they want, advise them how you're going to get that, where you're going to get it, and honor that need, and then they uh, usually feel somewhat reassured. So uh, that happens with hurricanes. They'll say, stay tuned for the latest updates. Oh, yeah. Right. And Everyone we st wants. we do. We all stay gl mm. stay glued or if it's right. a tornado or yeah. if it's a flood. Mm -hmm. And after a disaster, we we stay tuned. What's the government doing? What's the president doing? The governor and so forth and what's going to happen next or if it's a if it's an event uh, explosion or something in my workplace. Well, you know, what happened and is it going to happen again? Is it a perpetrator that's still out there? What about my job? When do I come back to work? You know, all those kinds of things. Uh, what about so-and-so who was hurt? Where are they? And so much need for information at a time when almost always, I would dare say always, there is lots of misinformation. And mm -hmm. so it's a very tricky situation. And there's a rumor mill that goes exactly. on. If that's what you're talking right. about with the right. misinformation. Right. Yeah. yeah. A rumor mill that can be destructive. Right. After Pan Am 103, there was some parents were notified that their children had died when they were not on the plane. There's always misinformation in the the fog of a disaster, the chaos. Um, and that's a real challenge to manage and has important mental health implications, um, obviously. Yeah. What are you thinking of? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, if someone is given misinformation um, about the, the safety or death of a loved one, that is going to be extremely upsetting and provoke anger and, and grief and, and more distress than would otherwise be warranted. Or another situation uh, I'm aware of where people thought, oh, they're going to be charged criminally when that really was not the case at all. But it was just a rumor that got generated that takes on a life of its own uh, and creating far more distress. You know, when I hear you talking about that, I think that one of the key problems with trauma is that it has the potential to affect your long-term life premises, your most fundamentally held ideas about yourself. I'm able to cope or not cope. It can affect your view of the world. This is no longer a safe place. I know I felt that after 9-11 for sure. a short period of time. Sure. It can affect your views of others. I can't trust the government. I can't trust other people after the war or mm -hmm. Something. It can affect profound fundamental ideas that you hold, Absolutely. which are all pervasive in your life. Mm -hmm. So I know that that's the type of psychological damage that can set a person up for an anxiety disorder, for depression, for post-traumatic stress disorder, and Absolutely. it's very, very damaging. You said some very interesting things in a talk that uh, you gave that I attended. What to say to someone, and I know you talked about this a little bit, where you hurt, it's over, you're safe, um, but also what not to say. Could you address that? Because I think there are things that we all say, and then we feel goofy after we say them. Okay, sure. Usually you would not say, and this is something that, you know, counselors, therapists are often trained to say, how are you feeling? Exactly. That would generally be inappropriate in the first moments or hours after a disaster. 
you're not trying to evoke more emotional reaction at that time. Interesting. Or things like, gee, you were lucky. When people often are not feeling particularly lucky uh, <laughs> at that point in time. And it can make you be perceived as just being stupid, uh, yeah. not with it. Or other things, usually things are said with good intent, like, you know, it's God's will, or there's some reason for this, or don't cry, or calm down. But are you Calm down really irritates me. If, yeah. some, if I'm feeling agitated, I feel totally invisible if someone tells me to yeah. calm down. Right. Listen, I can see that we're right at the end of time right now, so I want to thank you so much for joining us, Dr. James Campbell, and I look forward to talking with you again sometime. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And if you've been going through a trauma, you want to take some of the advice that Dr. James Campbell uh, talked about. The idea of knowing that initially you'll be in shock, you'll be in mental overload, and think of how to get the support you need. If it's a real big trauma, go to therapy, get some help. Don't try to do it alone because it can leave lifelong scars. And try to put, put things in perspective and also look at your own strengths. Really underscore what you know about yourself, how you've survived other crises. Many times we lose that focus. I'm Dr. Ellen Kenner. It's been great being with you today. See you again next week on The Rational Basis of Happiness. Here's an excerpt from The Selfish Path to Romance, the serious romance guidebook by clinical psychologist Dr. Ellen Kenner and co-author Dr. Edwin Locke who's world famous for his theories in goal setting. Constant, fresh, and interesting communication makes yourself lovable. But this takes work. To keep your relationship and the conversation interesting over a period of years, stay mentally active and alert. Together, learn and discover new things. Acquire new tastes. Study new ideas and choose new values. If you shut your mind off, you'll become a bore and no one will enjoy talking with you, not even your mother. Vegetables are good to eat, but they aren't any fun to converse with. If you want to be loved, work to make yourself lovable. You can download Chapter 1 for free by going to drkenner.com. And you can buy The Selfish Path to Romance at amazon.com.